Let's back up to verse 14. It seems like I may have marked this wrong. Or I put it wrong on the video. Let's back up to verse 14 of 1 John 5. Uh, I know we got through verse 13 uh, last week of 1 John 5. Where we talked about uh, he who has a son and he who doesn't have a son and those types of things, having love and not having love. Uh, and so we're, on, we're just going to read uh, verses 12 and 13. We'll pick up in verse 14. Uh, here in just a moment. He has a son, has life. He does not have a son, does not have life. These things I've written to you who believe the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe the name of the Son of God. Now, we know, as we've mentioned here before, that the ones who have God and have the Father are those who love God, those who love the brethren, those who love the truth, those who follow God's commandments, as he says there in verse 13. Uh, he says, there are these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. As we talked about before, we understand that those who believe are those who are who have obeyed the gospel, not just a simple belief. Uh, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. You'll notice there he, mentions, he uses the word there in verse 13, that you may know that you have eternal life. I think we mentioned this a little bit before, how there are some who feel like they don't, they can't know for sure if they're saved or they don't know for sure if they're saved. And the Bible answers that question. If we are following God's commandments and we are doing as the Bible tells us, living as the Bible tells us we are to be living, repenting when we fall short and following God's word, and we have obeyed the gospel to prior to those things, then yes, we can know we are saved because we are doing what the Bible says. When we are obeying the Bible, then we can know that we are saved. When we stop following God and stop obeying His Word, stop following the Bible, then we can know that we are not saved and not pleasing the sight of God. And he says there at the end of verse 13, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may continue, the word continue there, at least in the New King James, is italicized, meaning that it means I added it in there to help alert my to clarify that. To, that is a, it's a continual action to believe in God and to continue to believe in God. You know, when we talk about the plan of salvation, we said we talk about hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, being baptized. But what was the last thing we mentioned? Following baptism? Living faithfully, like that continual action, remaining faithful to God. And we find that same idea here in verse 13 that you may continue to believe. In the name of the Son of God, that you may continue to have faith in God, that continual action, not just a one-time obedience. Here in verse 14 says, Now this is the confidence we have in Him, that we, if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Now, again, you notice that conditions are applied to, at least from what I've seen, to pretty much everything in the Bible. Uh, you know, if you, want to have, if you want to have heaven as your home, there are conditions. You want to have the forgiveness of your sins, there are conditions. If you want to um, have confidence, as we see here, uh, excuse me, we, if we want to have uh, you know, confidence in knowing that God will answer our prayers, we have to make sure that our prayers, when we pray to God, they are according to, what does the Bible say, according to whose will? God's will, right? What that means is that we pray for things that are not, when we pray to God, we don't ask for things that are sinful, that would go against the nature of God, that go against the Bible. 
Uh, I believe it's James who talks about those who, who, who when they pray, they, they ask, they ask amiss because they, they ask for their, then they spend it upon their, their pleasures. And what he's talking about is that they pray for things that are simple. Amiss means they miss the mark, miss the, how they should be praying. And so here in verse 14 and 15, uh, he says, Now this is a confidence we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So we know that God hears us when we pray, but we also know that God will respond accordingly, according to his will. And we are to pray in a way that is not going to go against the word of God. We shouldn't pray for things that would, that would cause us to sin or encourage us to sin. He says there in verse 15, if anyone, or excuse me, and if we know, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, and we've already mentioned in verse 14 that whatever we ask is according to his will, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. So if God's going to answer our prayers in a positive sense, the first way to make sure that happens or to hope that happens is by praying and asking for things that are in accordance to his will, not going against the Bible, not that are sinful, not that will encourage us to sin or encourage others to sin. Think about it this way. If you have someone who has wronged you, would it be according to God's will for you to pray that something bad happens to them? No. If we have a hard time financially, could we say it's according to God's will that we pray that we win the lottery? No. So there's a difference in how how those things are done. When we pray, when someone has wronged us, we are to pray to God for them, right? Not pray to God hoping that something evil would befall them. Maybe we pray that they have a change of heart, a change of attitude, whatever it may be. If we are in financial straits, to use the other illustration, we shouldn't pray to God for the lottery ticket that's going to give us a million dollars. We should pray to God that we find a job that allows us to provide for ourselves and our family, right? And so two different things, one being according to his will that's not going to be sinful, and the others obviously most definitely are. Uh, verse 15, we know that we had the petition that we have asked of him. Verse 15. Looking at verse 16 here, uh, 1 John 5. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. Now, verse 16 is a very interesting thing to, to think about. We think about the sin that does not lead to death. We cannot pray for the for the uh, pray that the sins of the those who are not willing to repent and unbelieving, uh, you know, people who are are not willing to repent. Are they ever, you know, is that a sin that's leading to death? Yeah, right. So while there are. There, there are such uh, those who there are those who want to be forgiven. Uh, we think about verse sixteen here. Look again where it says, "If anyone sees his brother sinning in sin, which does not lead uh, to death, uh, sin is literally uh, sin, sinning a sin, literally a, a, a sinning a, a, an action. They see him doing something unto death. It's translated in, in the New American Standard as not leading to death, but it, literally it, it is uh, face to face with death." Is assumed that such a brother is penitent and admits his wrongdoing. 
there's no such thing as committing in sin that's not going to cause you to die spiritually, right? That doesn't exist. And so you can't be talking about doing a sin that that is not going to lead you to death in the sense that if someone does this, it's okay, because that goes against Scripture, doesn't it? I mean, the wages of sin is what? Death. And so the only thing that is a sin not leading to death is obviously has to be the idea, I should say obviously, is the idea that this brother is penitent. He, he sees his sin, he sees his actions, he's going to repent of it. Therefore, it's not a sin leading to death. He says, I will give him, uh, back up there, verse uh, 16, if anyone sees his brother sitting in sin, which does not lead to death, one he's repenting of or has repented of, he will ask, he will give him life for those who commit sin, not, not leading to death or not to death. It's a sin that has been repented of. There's no such thing as sin that does not separate a person from God. There is sin leading to death. What's a sin that leads to death? Any sin that's not repented of, right? Any sin we say, I don't see anything wrong with it. He says, I do not say that he should, that he should pray about that. A person who will not repent of their sins and has an attitude of, in the sense that they don't, want, they don't want to change, well, that sin leads them to death. Now, he says there, I do not say that he should pray uh, about that. That's not as an interesting thing, but do we pray for others? Yes. But until the person who is in sin and doesn't want to change, does it matter how much they pray until they change? No. The only way that brings about forgiveness of sins is repentance, which implies a change. It's literally a U-turn. And so if we are living in sin and we don't want to change, we can pray about it. And we know the Bible tells us God is not going to respond to the prayer of a person who's living in sin. And so we do not want to uh, be that kind of person who is caught in sin and is willing to repent of it. A sin that leads to death is a sin that's unrepentant of. A sin that does not lead to death is one that is repented of. He says in verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin. And there is sin not leading to death. All unrighteousness is those things which go against God. Unrighteousness is the opposite of righteousness. It, it is sin. And there is sin not leading to death. And that is a sin that is repented of. A sin leads us to death when we say, I'm not going to repent of it. And so there is no such thing as sin that a person can, can do that we can say, well, it doesn't lead to death. What would that sin be? The very definition of sin goes against that, doesn't it? Sin is a transgression of God's law. And so for that reason, the sin does not lead to death is, can only be the sin that we uh, repent of. The sin that leads to death is a sin that we refuse to repent of. Let's look at verse 18 here. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. Now, we mentioned this before. Does not sin. Is he talking about literally that when we are, when we are baptized, we become Sinlessly perfect? No. He's talking about the person who is born of God, which is a reference to a person who is a Christian, right? We talk about sometimes in there in Romans how we are born again, a born again Christian. We are born of God. That is, we are, we are a person who is following God. And so for that reason, it's not that we do not sin. Literally, the idea there in the Greek is that we do not live in sin. We're going to make mistakes. I mean, think about this for a second. Peter had the Holy Spirit according to Acts chapter 2, right? Do you also remember how the Apostle Paul had to stand him to his face because he was being a hypocrite, eating with one group of men, and so another group came and then he would separate and eat with them, and how it talks about even Barnabas was carried away and caught up in that. It shows us that's just one example that even though he had the Holy Spirit, he had free will, 
and he even him he could still sin. And so this is not talking about a person who is born of God in the sense that he, he does not commit sin. Born of God is only a reference to a Christian and does not sin is a reference to but they do not continue to live in sin. When they make a mistake, when they sin against God, they repent of it. Like we saw earlier, that's a sin that doesn't lead to death because it's repented of. But he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. Now, again, if you were to read this verse and, and pull it out of context of chapter 5, really if you pull it out of context of all of 1 John, so you would not be led to believe that when you become a Christian that you don't sin anymore. That you could do no wrong. But in context, in verse 18, we know that whoever is born of God is a Christian. We know that we can sin. So it can't be the idea of living in sin. It can't be an idea that we never sin. But it's, it's that we do not live in sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Keeps himself how? Now the Bible tells us, James says, we're to keep ourselves pure and unspotted from the world. Now, are we always going to be successful with that 100% every single day? If we're honest, no. Because if we say, well, I've never sinned anymore, I'd, I'd love to talk to you. Because the Bible tells us we are to sin less and less and less, but we're still going to make mistakes from time to time. But he who has been born of God, that is a Christian, keeps himself. The idea there is similar to what the Apostle Paul talks about, how we are to look in the mirror and make sure that we are right inside of God. We, sin, we see sin in our lives, we repent of it, and that way we keep ourselves and keep ourselves pure. And then he says at the end of verse 18, and the wicked one does not touch him. Now, think about this for a second. If you look at the book of Job, a man, he was, he was allowed by God to be tested by Satan. Now, Job was, to use God's own words, was a blameless man, not a sinless man, not a perfect man, though the King James translates it that way. But it's the idea of blameless. It is, he, he is, there's nothing you could hold against him. Now, did, did Satan touch him in a literal sense? Well, he caused affliction to come upon him. But didn't that come to an end? And so when we are in sin and we are living in sin, Satan in that way, you might could say in a figurative way, touches us in that sense. Right? I don't mean literal. Don't get ahead of me. But he, called, he tempts us to sin. And so long as we are in sin, he does touch us in that way. But when we come out of sin, we repent of our sins, we put those things behind us and when we make mistakes moving forward, we repent of them. Satan that way does not have dominion over us. He doesn't continually touch us and tempt us because we can recognize those things and push those things aside. So it's not the idea that Satan does not have an influence upon us, because he most definitely can, but we don't allow ourselves to be swept up in the sinful temptations and things that Satan no doubt brings upon us. So we have to be careful when we read these things that sound like they're absolute, because we recognize that so long as we are following God, yes, Satan does not touch us. But when we start to deviate and start going away from it, he most definitely does in the sense that he does tempt us. Look at verse 19. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of, and that under the sway of, at least in my Bible is italicized, uh, under the sway of the wicked one. Now, when he's talking about the world here, the whole world, 
He's not literally talking about every single person. Because if that was the case, that would put Satan having even Christians under his power. So the world must be a reference to those who are living in sin, right? Those who are living outside the body of Christ, those who have not obeyed the gospel, are they under the power or the influence of Satan and other evil individuals who are no doubt promoting things that would be evil? Well, yes, they are. They are under the, the sway or the influence of the wicked one. And so we know that we are of God. We know that we are a Christian. And we know the whole world or the sinful world lies under the power or the influence of Satan. And we can look around us today and see that the non-Christian is most definitely influenced by Satan, right? And that's not hard to see. We see what's going on in our world around us. We see what's going on in the political arena and in our, even in our own community sometimes we can see that. And so the sinner is under the sway of the wicked one while the Christian is not, verse 19. Verse 20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, and in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal, and eternal life. So if we look at verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding. Do we have the ability to understand the Bible? Yes, we have that ability. God's given us that ability to be able to read and understand, to be able to apply and to apply those things. And so it's, this is not a miraculous understanding we're talking about here. It's the idea that God's given us the ability to understand and know that and can come to knowledge of knowing that Christ is the Son of God. That we can know who God is. We know who Christ is. We can know what God wants from us. And we can know how to obey the gospel, those types of things. He's given us an understanding. He says that we may know him who is true. That understanding he has given us, that ability he has given us, allows us to know him who is true, which is Christ. And we are in him who is true, or excuse me, that's the Father, and in his Son, Jesus Christ. So him who is true is the Father, and we are in him who is true, and in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Now, you think for a second there in verse 20, why would you word it that way when he says, this is the true God and eternal life? What does the phrase true God imply? There's only one, right? And so were those who were caught up in idolatry, that would help them realize or should that there's only one true God, and he's not talking about their God, little g, right? And so this is the, the true God and eternal life. And the reference, that's a reference to salvation. So this is the one true God, and this is salvation. Believing in Christ, believing in God. And look at verse 21. He ends uh, this chapter here. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Now, it's interesting that he, and we understand the verses are added by mankind, but Verse 20 ends with, this is the true God and eternal life. Then the final verse says here, keep yourselves from idols. You know, throughout, really, 1 John, he makes various comments that go against those who are following after idols. He makes comments that goes against those who believe that Christ didn't come in the flesh. We, call, we referenced him before, 
the Gnostics who didn't believe that Christ came in the flesh because they believed flesh was evil, so Christ couldn't come in the flesh. And so he made numerous comments about how Christ came in the flesh, they saw him in the flesh, those types of things, they beheld him, all those types of things. And then he ends here with making comments that go, that no doubt uh, affect those who are following after idols, the true God, and then keep yourselves from idols. And so he concludes chapter 5 by encouraging us to follow the one true God, that we have the understanding and the ability to know who the one true God is, but that we can be in him and in his son, and that we are to keep ourselves from idols. Now, you think about this for a second. A person knows God when they read and study the scriptures, right? That's how we get to know God. You know, by reading, we gain understanding. You know, we, faith comes by hearing. And you think about the idol. How does the idol worshiper come to know their idol? What's the first thing they have to do? They have to make it, right? I mean, you can't know your idol till you make it. Well, the Christian in, in, in the Old Testament time, the follower of God, knew God when they obeyed his commandments. They didn't have to make God. And so the idol worshiper, before they could even know their idol, they had to first decide what it's going to be, who it's going to look like, what it's going to look like, how big, how small, how heavy, all those things. And so they would only know their idol in accordance to how they made it. But we know God in accordance to his word. Any comments or questions before we move into the second uh, John here? All right, let's look at second John then. In second John, we find that John calls himself the elder. Uh, this is an added bit of information. He also does this, I believe, in third John as well. Uh, some say it's a reference to him being older. Some say it could be a reference to him actually being a elder. Uh, at least to me, it's not totally clear. Uh, the word elder there is capitalized. So at least in my mind, it lends towards the idea of him being uh, possibly an elder. Uh, but again, most of the time it's applied to him being, being older in age. Uh, we also find that uh, the purpose here, as we're going to find in 2 John, is to rejoice uh, with the faithful sister, he's going to be mentioned on hearing that they were uh, hearing they were walking in the truth, and they also were to avoid the seductions of the false teachers in Second John. And then we also have reference in Second John in, in the first verse, the elect lady, which we'll talk about in a moment. Which uh, most in the church, not that that means it has to be who it is, but most of the times when we talk about the elect lady in chapter two, verse one, they're talking about someone who is of Distinction. We're not talking about a lady who is in a leadership position over the church or anything like that, because she would be condemned, wouldn't she? Uh, she wouldn't be exhorted, she'd be condemned. And so, to the elect lady, there is all lowercase in verse 1, and many times, we'll talk about here in a second, it's a reference to someone there who is just a lady of distinction, someone maybe who is a well-known teacher, someone who's been a great encouragement to others, uh, that type of thing. And so let's go ahead and look at 2 John chapter, 2 John verse 1. There's only one chapter here. It says, The elder, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. So we find here in verse 1 that 
does John have a particular gratefulness and love for this person? Yeah. Because as he points out here, he says, whom I love, and he says here, in, in truth, and not only I. Now, in truth means, does that sound like he loves her because she follows the truth? Yeah. And so, you know, sometimes we don't know, you know, think about for a second, how many times have you read articles or maybe books by people, and then maybe someday down the line, you actually get to, to meet them at a certain, I don't know, gospel meeting or something. And over the years, you learn to love them in the sense because you love that they stand for the truth. You have read their material. Maybe you've heard them on the radio or something. But in that sense, you love them because of what they stand for, which is the truth. And we find that same idea here in verse 1. Whom I love in truth. And then he says, not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. And so it's not just him who knows her and loves her and appreciates her for what she is doing, but others as well who know the truth. And so it's the idea of loving her and appreciating her because of the truth. Now it would stand, it would stand uh, to, uh, also to realize that if she had not been following the truth, that this would read a whole lot differently, right? I don't think he'd say he didn't love her, but I think he'd probably be saying something a little bit different. And would it matter if it was a man or woman whom he was writing to? We know that when he wrote to those in Corinth many times, his words were pretty strong. He loved them dearly, but he came at them pretty strong. Uh, but here in verse 1, he loves her because she, she is in the truth, which she is following the truth, and he loves her in the truth there in verse 1. And he goes on to say here in verse 2, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. And so he hangs on to this idea of the truth that really binds them together. You know, what makes the churches of Christ, churches of Christ. It's not the sign, is it? No, it's what happens inside the building, right? That's what makes us the church of Christ. That's why the sign says what it does, but the truth is what makes us who we are. And the absence of truth also reveals who we are. But the truth is what makes us who we are, it defines who we are, we are the church of the Christ based upon the truth that we preach and that we teach and that we follow. Verse 2, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us, he says there, uh, forever. And so John loved them not, not because of unusual attractiveness or personal charm, but because of the truth. And only those who have a love of the truth can really love in truth. And he says, and she'll be with us forever. So the truth will continue forever, right? The Bible will always be with us. It's interesting, at least to me, that sometimes you think about how many times the Bible has been attacked, and yet today we have it more readily available to us than ever before, right? I mean, you can get a Bible for, if you have an electronic device, you can get one for nothing. We can pick one up at the dollar store too, right? And so it's more available to us than ever before, despite all the assaults on what it contains. Verse 3 says, Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the, Son of the Father, in truth and love. And so, again, he mentions here, this is, again, just part of his greeting. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Now, grace is a reference, we know, to the transgression of man and God's unmerited favor, extended in forgiveness, 
Mercy has reference to the pity that God has on man because of the misery that sin produces in the lives of men. And peace has a reference to contentment and serenity. And so no doubt these are well wishes he's, he's talking about here in verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace with you. You know, today we just, we, we greet someone, we say, hey, it's good to see you and shake their hand, give them a hug. It doesn't sound like a whole lot. I'm talking about how sometimes these greetings go on. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Now, someone came up to you and said that today, if we're honest, I'd probably think this sounds like somebody's from the Catholic Church because they say that a lot of times, right? In their communions and things, they say grace to you, peace to you, and those types of things. Uh, but they don't say it anywhere else. Well, here we find this is not just this is not some you know formal thing that he does only only from time to time. It seems like he talks this way a lot, and he's he's wanting them to have grace and mercy and peace. He wants them to be without uh, you know turmoil and hardship. And he says, "Be will be with you from God the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love." And so it's implied there, no, and no doubt true that. So long as they follow the truth and have love for the truth and no doubt love for one another, as we saw in the first uh, first John, that this grace, mercy, and peace will be with them. He says it comes from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice he says there, the Son of the Father. He continues to make these clarifications numerous times because, there, again, there's still those there, likely there, who had a problem with Christ being the Son of God. And no doubt they weren't going to be... Uh, you know, that wasn't who he was talking to, but when, when they read this, when they hear this, they're going to see the Son of the Father. Now, if we look at verse 4, he says, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth. Now, some in, in the King James is italicized. Uh, he says, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we receive commandments from the Father. Now, he makes, again, clarification here. He says, I rejoice greatly to have found some of your children walking in truth. He rejoices that they are walking in the truth. He doesn't mention anything specifically other than walking in the truth. And that's the reason for his rejoicing. But then he also clarifies a little bit here, not that they didn't know what he was talking about, but he, he clarifies by saying, as we receive commandment from the Father. Well, the truth is, is no doubt contains commandments from the Father, but also a command from God is to do what? Are we to remain faithful as that commandment from God? Yeah. And so they are to keep that commandment. And he says, which we have received from the Father. And now he says here in verse 5, And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Now again here, he mentions here this lady, uh, I think this this verse might be one of the reasons sometimes people think that elect lady is a reference to the church as a whole. Uh, e either way, if he's, if, he, if he's talking to her, no doubt it would be repeated to those around. If he's talking to the church, it's going to the whole church. Uh, but he says, I plead with you, lady, not as though I have brought a new commandment to you, but that which we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. John mentions love a lot, doesn't he? You think there was a problem with love? I mean, you want to talk about something over and over again that wasn't a problem. And if you go somewhere and you see risen congregation, you see there is love for one another. There's a lot of, you know, compassion and love and, and, and 
things, things that revealed and showed you very quickly, they love one another here. Would you get up and preach really, really hard on the need for love? Probably not there. But why would John mention it over and over again? Because it would seem that there are some who need to be reminded of that. That we love one another. And this, he says, is not a new commandment. It's just one they have heard from the beginning, which, as we mentioned before, most likely implies the beginning of uh, the gospel, going back to Acts chapter 2, the beginning of the church. Uh, to be more clear, the beginning of the church there in verse 5. That we love one another. In verse 6, this, this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is, a commandment, this is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. So this is love that we walk according to his commandments. We mentioned before in John 14, 15, do you remember what John 14, 15 says? If you what, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And we find that same idea here in verse 6, right? This is love. That we walk according to his commandments. Now, walk is a reference to how we live. We live according or after the commandments of God, right? And so if we love God, we're going to live according to his word. If we don't love God, isn't it implied that we're not going to live according to his word? <clears throat> how many times, think about this for a second, have you heard people talk about, maybe just in passing, and sometimes this happens when you invite someone to a, to a, to a service or to a coffee meeting or something, and you're trying to invite someone to that event, and they talk about how they're already a Christian, and maybe they talk about how much they love God just briefly many times. Yeah, you know, we, we go to church all the time, you know, we go over here, and they kind of use it as a way to not come to whatever service or event you're inviting them to. But... Love we find here is not just a one-time obedience. It's not a one-time act. It's not obeying this command or that command. It's not proclaiming that we love God and then not loving God. Because that word walk there is a reference to how we live, then we then our, our life is one that is consumed with us following God's commandments because we love God. He says in verse 6, This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. And so he's saying that you have heard this from the very beginning of, you know, the establishment of the church. And we're honest. We go back to the Old Testament. We find the same idea. If we love God, Israel loved God, they were to follow him always, right? We find that numerous times as they were being brought out of Egypt and then into the promised land and those, uh, during that time period as well. And no doubt afterwards as well. But we find that same idea here. And he's saying they have heard this. These individuals have heard this from the beginning from then. That means I've heard it since the church began. Now they knew probably they could have known they you know heard about it in the Old Testament. Have they heard it actually preach from the beginning of the church? That's what he's talking about here in verse six. That you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. And they so they, they should walk in this love that is one that is obedient to the truth of God's word and that is continually obedient to it. We live as a Christian, it's not a simply a simple uh, one-time act of obedience. And I notice verse 7. You'll notice as we've gone through here that Second John hits on some of the same things we talked about in the first five chapters of, of First John, but he does so at a, at a quicker pace, right? And we're going to find later he's, he's going to mention how he's going to come to them shortly. He didn't want to spend a whole lot of time writing to them because he was on their, their, his way to them, hopefully. 
But he, he, he talks about several things, even in this, I think it's 12, 13 verses here of 2 John. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now that is a direct slam against the Gnostics. Because they did not believe that Christ came in the flesh. They believed and taught that all flesh was evil, and so Christ could not have come in the flesh. Well, they were wrong on both accounts. Flesh isn't evil. The person who is living decides if their flesh is evil or not, based upon how they live, right? But we find here in verse 7, he says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Now, he says many, which means there's not just a few. Now, do numbers make one group more correct than another? No. I mean, there could have been one group of small faithful believers surrounded by 500 or 1,000 Gnostic you know, people. Would that make the church and those few people wrong? No. The louder voice does not mean you're right. And looking here in verse uh, 7, for many deceivers have gone out to the world, which means they had no doubt probably a loud voice because enough that they gained the attention of John here by saying they do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. And he makes it very clear, this is a deceiver and an antichrist. So this is someone who is wrong. A deceiver is someone who is, who is a seducer, who misleads people. They're antichrist, that is, they are opposed to Christ. And who's he say it is? Those who say that who, those who do not confess Christ is coming in the flesh. When we make the great confession, sometimes we say, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Sometimes we say, I believe Jesus Christ died, you know, came to earth as the Son of God, died on the cross for our sins and rose again, those types of things. The idea is the same. We believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Hopefully by what we have read prior to that, we understand that Christ is the Son of God who came in the flesh. Josephus, one of the ancient Jewish historians, talks about, he mentions Christ numerous times in his book, and those who saw him implying in the flesh, and talked a little bit about what Christ was known for, at least around the community, right? And he couldn't do that if Christ didn't come in the flesh. Gnostics, some would even go so far where he came you know, he, he, it appeared as if he was in the flesh. If he wasn't in the flesh, he couldn't have been nailed to the cross, could he? He wouldn't have been able to be touched. He wouldn't have been able to have someone lean on him during the Lord's during the institution of the Lord's Supper. And the list goes on and on and on. He came in the flesh. Verse 8, he says, Look to yourselves that we do not lose things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. Now, if there are many deceivers that go out into the world, in verse 7, what does it imply that deceivers can do to you in verse 8? If they lead you astray, what happens? You lose your reward, right? Because if they lead you astray and you believe in Christ did not come in the flesh, in verse 7, and they are called an antichrist for believing that. And they lead you away because they are a deceiver, as he says in verse 7. Verse 8 implies that they can cause you to lose things that they have worked for, that they may receive a full reward. They will lose those things, which means you cannot believe 
as the Gnostics do, those deceivers, those antichrists, the verse 7, and still have your reward. That, that tells us today concerning false teachers who teach, and that means they teach something that is false. The Bible doesn't support it. If they teach something that is false and we are led astray by it, does that mean that even us today can lose our reward? Yes. And so we may not, we may still have some today who, who believe that Christ did not come in the flesh. Of course, we know we have those who didn't believe in Christ, who don't believe in God, and the list goes on and on. And they can lead us astray, and then we also can still lose our, our reward. Look at verse 8. He says, look to yourselves. Um, <clears throat> the idea there being perceptive. To think about, you know, when you interact with people and you, you hear what they're saying, that you think about what is taking place. Sometimes people are very smooth talkers. You don't realize they're, what they're talking about, what they, what they are meaning, or the or the implications of what they're saying until a little bit later, which means we have to really pay attention to how people are saying things. Because like when someone says, do you really believe a loving God would send someone to hell? You know, let's see, you know, let's talk about how much God loves mankind and those types of things. We agree, God loves mankind. We also understand that God doesn't have to, quote unquote, send someone to hell, does he? No, our life choices determine that. God has set up the destinations. Our life choices determine where we go. But there are those who will, who will push those types of things till, to the point where if you're not careful, you get swept up and before you know it, you're following something that you really don't want to be following. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for. Now, for those who say that faith and that being a Christian is not a work, that works can't save you, we understand the works of merit cannot save us. But what does verse 8 talk about? What does that imply? Is being a Christian, does that require work? Does that require effort? Yes. It requires effort, right? Because every time some person, you know, goes off at the mouth about being an atheist and, you know, denying God, it takes effort to maybe ignore some of the things they say and also takes effort to have the courage to say, now let's talk about that. It is a work. That's why he says in verse 8 that we do not lose those things we worked for, which also tells us that, that we become a Christian because he's talking to Christians, isn't he? Lose those things you worked for, he's talking to faithful Christians. But it also implies that we can become unfaithful and that we are not once saved, always saved, right? Because if you were once saved, always saved, why even have verse 8? That we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. And that full reward is heaven as our home. Now, we receive rewards in many senses here on earth by the fact that we can enjoy fellowship with one another. That's the reward of being a Christian. That we can enjoy the love we have for one another. That's the reward of being a Christian. That we can have our sins forgiven on earth. While we're on earth, as we have obeyed the gospel, that's a reward. But being able to pray to God through Christ, that's a reward. And the list goes on and on and on. But that full reward is that reward that awaits us in the heavenly home. And we do not want to lose that. We don't want to lose any of our rewards of being a faithful Christian. Okay, our time is up uh, after that verse.
Uh, we're going to stop there this morning. And I'm going to mark this, and hopefully this time it will work. And next week when we come back, uh, we'll pick up in 2 John in verse 9, uh, looking at those who transgress and do not abide in the doctrine of Christ. So we'll stop there this morning. I do thank you for your time and for your attention, and we'll be dismissed till the worship hour.